Well, today we are starting a new sermon series, uh, which I think is going to be hard to beat the jokes from last week. I had so many people say they enjoyed the jokes, how great the jokes were, made me feel kind of silly that, uh, you know, I don't get that kind of feedback for sermons. Maybe I should just tell jokes, but that's all right. We're going to jump into a new series, have a little bit of fun here today still. New series is called Speaking Christianese. And what I want to do is take a look at a lot of the words of faith, the things that we say all the time in the church, and, and dive a little bit into what they mean. And, and today is going to be kind of an introduction to this series, and I want to talk about how words work and why I think we need to do this series. Now, a few years ago, I finished a Doctor of Ministry degree from Portland Seminary, um, which was, and the, the program was titled Semiotics and Future Studies. Semiotics and Future Studies. Now, I realize that most of you know what semiotics are, but for those one or two of you that don't, let me describe it for just a minute. Semiotics is based on the Greek word for sign or symbol. And uh, John uses the word to talk about the seven miracles or signs that Jesus does in his gospel. And he says this was the first sign, this was the second. That's a, that's a semion, okay, a sign. Now when I say that I studied and got a doctorate of ministry in signs and symbols, people look at me kind of funny as if maybe we spent three years in teepees dissecting the book of Revelation for all kinds of weird stuff we could find in there. But in reality, semiotics is a cross between philosophy and linguistics. And it looks at how people and, commu and cultures communicate. Semioticians get jobs working from marketing to Wall Street to strategic planning to um, all kinds of things. Uh, and what, what, what semioticians do is read the signs and languages of the culture and the businesses and try to see kind of where trends are going and also try to communicate in such a way that it connects with people. So today I'm going to give you a crash course in semiotics in how language works. Any word fundamentally is a symbol. That may sound strange to think about, but it's an important way to think about our language. Okay, so when I talk about a sandwich, I, there's no sandwich here. I'm going to tell you there's no sandwich here. Okay, I'm using a series of sounds to make uh, to a representation that you associate with sandwich. Now, probably when we think of a sandwich, we all think of a little different sandwich. Like, I don't know if yours was a sub or like on a hoagie roll or if it was two pieces of bread. If you thought peanut butter and jelly or as I instantly think of like bacon, turkey and cheese. Okay. But see, the, the, the word, the word stands in for what it represents. And we know that, right? Because in Spanish, it's not sandwich. It's something else. And in French, it's something else. We, we've agreed upon what this series of sounds means, even though um, there's a, a different connotation, maybe. If, if I talk about Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther, they're not here. I'm using words to stand in for that person. That's a, that's a symbol. It's a representation. And it means different things for different people. So if I say we're going to go to a restaurant after church, you might think of a fancy restaurant. But if you say that to my kids, they're thinking, well, are we going to McDonald's or Wendy's? See, that's their connotation of what a restaurant is. Okay, so a word stands in for something. Many words are metaphors and have backstories. They don't come from nowhere. Okay, so, so think about the, the word I just used, backstory. Backstory is a metaphor. 
Okay, you don't think about it as a metaphor, but it is. It's the story behind, the back story. So back behind whatever we're talking about somewhere is a story that led up to what we're talking about. That's called the back story. Okay, it's a spatial, a positional metaphor. I use the word nowhere. Uh, who thought of the word nowhere? Like that's a question and the answer put together, but the answer comes before the question. I would love to have been there the first time somebody said where, and then somebody else said no, no, nowhere, what? Um, see, the, the, the words have a lot of times metaphors, backstories, they come from somewhere, and then we start to use them, and a lot of times we lose where they came from. Okay, so um, a, a lot of times uh, these topics or concepts have a framework too, so words can mean different things in different contexts. So if I go to the, to the zoo and I see an elephant... It means something different than if I see a political cartoon and I see an elephant or a donkey, right? Like, I know when I read it in this context, it means one thing. I know if, it, if I'm on a different framework, it means something else. This is important to understand because it means the meaning of words and the frameworks that they were interpreted in are all sort of constructs. And if you change them, they might mean something else. Um, have you, have you ever realized, you ever been talking to somebody and realized that you misheard a word? Or realized that their concept of what you were talking about is not what you had in mind? It's not always easy to communicate for lots of reasons. Um, some of us have different experiences. Um, for instance, in the church we like to talk about God as Father, which is a great image if you had a loving Father that you had a good relationship with. But if you had a, an abusive Father... To talk about God as Father, that's a very different kind of image, and you sort of have to get over your own baggage that you're bringing to that word. Sometimes words aren't agreed upon. Some words, like the word semiotic, you, you don't, may not know. Some cultures have different words, like the French or the Russians. They have different words for everything. This is more complicated when the same words can mean different things. Like if I say that I'm cool, does that mean I'm awesome? Does that mean I'm cold? Further, words change meaning. Okay, my great-grandparents never said cool. I just don't think that they said the word cool. Okay, and when we sing the Christmas carols that say that we're all happy and gay, my kids hear those lyrics very differently than the carol writers did because language changes. So in order to get over these hurdles, we have to communicate and we have to clarify. In school, when you read a word that you don't know what the meaning of it is, you look for contextual clues. Okay, I've listened to my kids. They use this language. Okay, You look for the, the clues in the sentence that might hint you in. So in verbal communication, we might try to figure out what a word means based on what's around it. But we also have uh, visual cues. Okay, and and, and the, the research is out there that says a lot of what you and I communicate and understand from other people is nonverbal. It's not verbal. You know who's great and an expert on semiotics and reading symbols? My dog. We have a golden doodle. His name is Geppetto. We call him Jep. And uh, Jep is fantastic at reading situations. When I get up in the morning and I make sandwiches for my kids to take to school and my lunch, somehow my dog knows I got the sandwich bin out of the, out of the fridge and he is right next to me hoping for ham or cheese. Okay, Jep is not allowed to beg at the table, but he seems to anticipate when spills are going to happen. Like he knows 
Okay, and if a little kid is over, he knows if I sit by that kid, I'm more likely to get uh, a piece of food than if I sit by my parents. Okay, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff knows when I'm going to go for a walk at Pearson Park. In fact, the word walk and the word park are two words that my dog can hear all the way across the house. He can be in a dead sleep. If I say I'm going for a walk, all of a sudden he's in the room with me. Okay, because he's picking up on all these cues. When I come to bed at night, a lot of times Jeff sleeps on Mandy's side of the bed. And when she comes to bed, she, he slides over to my side of the bed. And then when I come to bed, he moves. Normally, we don't have to tell him to do that. He sees us coming. He anticipates, okay, they brush their teeth. I know that I've got this much time. And, and normally, I don't have to tell him to move. And he somehow knows if I'm coming in just to get something out of my room or to tell Mandy something versus when I'm actually coming to bed. He, like, watches me and somehow knows. Right? We all do this. We, we watch for clues for how to communicate, how to understand Consider how much of what you communicate is metaphor and symbol. It's framework and it's nonverbal. And consider how you never stop to think about all those things. You just picked it up. Okay? And, and I wonder how much you picked up. Have you ever said something and, and, and suddenly stopped and been like, I just sounded exactly like my mom. Right? Like, I just, that was my dad. My dad would have said exactly that with exactly that tone. I mean, think about how much you picked up and how you communicate. And how much of that is accepted and even mutually agreed upon in our culture without conscious discussion. Right? That we're going to use the word cool to mean different things, and we're all going to agree on what those things are. And for instance, this is a metaphor. I I think I've used this before, but I think it's just such a great metaphor, an example of this. Everybody here, everybody in their cars, uses a metaphor when they talk about time. You all do it. Every time you talk about time, almost every time you talk about the time, you use a certain metaphor. We all agree to it. We all understand it. And yet you've never, ever probably noticed that you always talk about time as if it is money. You think about time as money. Consider you spend time, you save time, you waste time, you're out of time, you have lots of time, you have no time to spare, you invest your time, you budget your time, you put aside time. Is the time worth your while? You, have you ever been on borrowed time? Has anything taken too much time? Have you used your time profitably? You ever lost time? I know that was a long list and it cost us a lot of time, but thank you for giving me your time and listening to me while I read it. Right now, think about that. You all talk about time as money, and yet, did you ever consciously say, yeah, I'll buy into that metaphor. Yeah, time's money. But you all got the memo. You all do it. But but did you ever consciously think about that? No, you did what we all did. You just picked it up somehow. I wonder what other language and frameworks you inherited without totally understanding, noticing, or picking up. See, religion is fundamentally what what, uh, semioticians and sociologists would call cultural linguistic traditions. In other words, what religion fundamentally is, is language and practices that you pick up. That you picked up since a lot of you were kids. Words, metaphors, stories, frameworks. But, But these have all changed They've all morphed. They've gotten clarified, reshaped, abandoned, rediscovered. And and over time, we have all this language that we use. 
to say this another way, I think language follows experience. Okay, we put words to something after we've experienced. Nobody goes on their first date and in the first five minutes says, I love you. Okay, you go on multiple dates. You may even hold hands, right? And then eventually you have a DTR, we used to call it. You define the relationship, a DTR conversation, and eventually start using the L word, that you love somebody. See, you started all these feelings and these experiences, and then later you're like, I better put a word to that. Like, I better actually name what, what's going on there. This is how, how Christianity really developed, how religions developed. The Bible uses words that meant something in their day, in their culture, often with metaphors and backstories to them. And the church wrestled with these concepts. Okay? They didn't have the language of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. They just experienced the Trinity, <laughs> And they had all these stories in the Bible that had God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then eventually they had to develop language. So the language followed the experience. Over time, though, the church changed and morphed. It, it adds different language. Martin Luther moves a lot of the language, like grace and faith, to the center of Christianity, where it hadn't been the same way before that. All the while, Martin Luther was changed, translating the New Testament into German so people could have it. So now we have all these words, concepts, symbols, practices, hymns, traditions. Some are very old, like the doxology. Some are quite new, like where exactly everything goes in the kitchen downstairs. But we have all this language, right? I'll call it Christianese, because when, when somebody who's never been to church comes in here, there's all kinds of words they've never heard before and they have no concept for. But my question is, when we use all these words, faith, grace, love, hope, good news, worship, potluck, membership, elders, deacons, do we all agree on what those are? Do we know the metaphors and backstories that came to that language? Do you know what the good news is? Okay. Do you know what the gospel is? Or when I say gospel, do you think of a style of music? Do you understand grace? And when I say grace, do you think of it as a concept or do you think of it as what you say before a meal? Right? There's all this Christian language. I believe in America today and in the Western culture in general, we've lost a lot of our language for a lot of reasons. I think under familiarity, there's a lot of people out there who just don't know. They weren't raised in the church. They aren't having experienced this language. Some of it's over familiarity. I think a lot of us have been using terms like grace for a long time without really understanding the backstory. We, we have divided the words. I mean, think about this. When you were in school, you learned vocabulary words. You never learned vocabulary metaphors. Okay, you never learned the backstory to words. You just learned the definition. That you can thank the Enlightenment for that. Enlightenment moved words to the front of the line. Okay, Enlightenment set up how words come first and meaning and metaphor is much further down the road. I think the Enlightenment messed up a lot of things for the church. Since the 1500s, I think logic has, has, has moved a lot that way. I think we've read the Bible and Christian words with a strict literalism that has robbed it of its metaphor and story. We argue the historicity of the Bible at the expense of the life-giving experience of the Bible. And part of it, I believe, is that we as Christians have so wedded our Christian faith to our culture that when we go to read the Bible that's in the first century, we, we have trouble getting past our own blinders. That's why I do so much work in my sermons to get you 
to, to kind of dive into what the first century was like. So let me, let me to end the sermon, give you a, a quick example of a backstory and framework to a few major words we use in the church that maybe you never knew before. In 49 BCE, so before the time of Jesus, General Julius Caesar won a civil war and brought the Roman Republic uh, together under himself and made himself the emperor. This was the start of the Roman Empire. But he only ruled for five years until he was assassinated. When he was assassinated, his son Octavius took over and uh, won another civil war to be the emperor just like his father. He then took on the name Augustus. So you will know the name Caesar Augustus. Now, when uh, Julius was assassinated, there was this giant comet in the sky that then stayed there for about a week, the, the week he died. And so when Caesar, uh, when um, Caesar Augustus became Caesar, he printed coins that on one side had his face, but on the other side had a, a bright comet. And it said on the coin... Son of God. In other words, what he said was that comet was, was my father. And he was with the gods. He was divine. And so now I am divine. He called himself the son of God. Then now Caesar Augustus, during his reign, the empire expanded both with a lot of conquering. So when armies at the edge of the empire would, would push and gain more territory, riders would spread throughout the land and they would announce, Euangelion. Now, you may not know the Greek word euangelion, but you've heard the English equivalent evangelical. Okay, we translate that as good news or gospel. Okay, so these writers would come to the Roman Empire and they'd say good news. And the good news was always we conquered somebody else. We conquered this nation, we conquered this nation, this nation here. Okay, good news, gospel. And when they would come, they would gather the people in town and they would, they would gather what called, what's called an assembly. The word for assembly is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia. You might know it as a different word because that word ecclesia was translated in Old English as kirk and then was actually trans, you know, was moved into English, in modern English, as church. At the end of the assembly, when, when, the, when it was all over, the people would declare their loyalty to their divine emperor, they would say, Caesar is Lord. Now, let me read to you the beginning, just first five verses of 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church, the ecclesia of, Thessalon of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, brothers love, for we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. For because our gospel, Euangelion, good news, came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. For your sake. You hear all that language? The early church borrowed, no, it commandeered this language of the Son of God, of the ecclesia, of good news, and of Caesar as Lord. And they said, no, no, no. You know, in Jesus, he was really the Son of God. 
And we're, we're going to have true gatherings to tell the real good news. And the good news isn't, isn't that there's victory militarily. No. The good news is what Jesus has done. And so who ultimately gets our loyalty as our divine ruler? Jesus does because Jesus is Lord. Son of God, good news, church, Jesus is Lord. How many times have you heard this language, sung these in hymns, read these in liturgies, but you never knew the backstory. So that's what I want to do in this sermon series. I want to take you through a lot of these words, and I want to break them down by using the metaphors and backstories that led to the words, so that as we use them, we actually use them in a way that we agree to. And I, I think one of the reasons why the church in America is so divided today is we use a lot of words, but we don't agree on what they mean. And, and we've lost our backstory. We've lost our metaphors. We've lost our, our language of faith. And to lose your language of faith is to lose the experience, right? And so I, I want to try to give you some of the experience that to, to these words of faith so that these words can mean something more to you. But for today, as we start this journey, I would just ask you to think closely about the Christianese that you use. The words you might use all the time that maybe you you say peace, but do you really know what biblical love is, grace, and good news? How did you learn those words in this Christian stuff? And are you taking it for granted? Ask God to teach you the language of faith so that you can experience him in more new and in deep ways. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.